All right, if you're working with me, uh, I pray you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like a Bible, raise your hand and one of the ushers and elders can bring you a Bible tonight. I mean, you think about the passages we're going through, we're reading a lot. It really ha helps to have a Bible in front of you so you can read it yourself and follow along. And uh, it, it helps you not to fall asleep, all right? It keeps you, keeps you focused and attentive here. So let's look at chapter 29, verse 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father David had done. So... By this point of Hezekiah, if you remember, and I don't know how many of you still have this, we handed these out. They may even still be in the table in the back or even out in the lobby. And if you're listening to this online, you can call the church. We can email you a copy of these. But I put together for you a timeline for the prophets of the kings. You might remember many of you have this. If you don't, you can see it's on the table out there. Or if not, um, Jen in the church office can get, get you a copy. But it goes through and it lists uh, Judah and Israel and it lists the kings. It lists the prophets at the same time, the length of years and reign and the years since Solomon. And the reason I bring that up, because as we get to Hezekiah, just using that handy dandy table there, we also know that this is a time where at, at that, you might say contemporarily, Assyria has already invaded the north. So the northern tribes have already gone into captivity. There are still a remnant, a few people will read about that, that are still in that area, but most of them have been taken captive and relocated to Assyria and, you know, trying to be reassimilated. That's what the Assyrian people did. They would take and then they would require you to intermarry and then you would... Um, you know, reestablish, and that would then create a new loyalty to the Assyrian king and the, their government as rather than your own people group, which is what um, Assyria did very effectively so that we come up with a new type of people, the Bible would describe them, and they're called Samaritans. And this is where we get that name, and it was from the Assyrian invasion because they intermarry with non-Israelites um, that way. So that's all been going on. Who's on the scene at this time from the prophets? There's two of them, right? Again, if you look at your table and you, you bring up your table, it clearly tells us that we have here Micah, because he reigned at the time of Hezekiah, because we're right around 740. Um, Hezekiah reigns at about 716 B.C., so you're somewhere between 740 and 716. You had Micah as one of the prophets. He's one of your minor prophets you have in your scriptures. Uh, maybe you've read the book of Micah. And then the other prophet that we have at that time and um, was a contemporary was Isaiah. And so reading the book of Isaiah, learning about the things that were going on at that time, God using Isaiah as a prophet of mouthpiece, it also gives us background information of what was going on here. It's interesting and striking, right in verse 1, it says he was, he was 25 years old. I, I just want you to think about that. Uh, think what it was like many of you uh, are, are 25 or just turning 25 or right in that range. Many of us have well passed 25. We're on the back nine. And so we look sort of back, and I want you to think back what it was like when you were 25 and the things that you understood at that time, right? For some, I know most of us, that's only like five years ago, right? But, but, uh, but this is a young man with not a lot of experience, and the only experience he did have was very ungodly and unrighteous because his dad and the things his dad did, he closed the temple. He didn't grow up with a lot of righteousness or godliness because it wouldn't have been from his dad's side. I mean, he was an apostate. He was an idolater, and he pretty much did everything he could to destroy any type of uh, worship towards the Lord, God, Jehovah. So he clearly didn't get it there. And I don't find that as a coincidence here that as we're reading this, it says Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, right around the same time that, by the way, the apostles, the 12 apostles would have been right around that similar age, about 10 years or so, eight, you know, seven years or so like that, younger than Jesus Christ, right, uh, at that time. So young men, it's amazing what God can do with young men without any training. With a loyal and a righteous heart, what can't God do, right? So let that be a good word of encouragement to all of our young people tonight, male and female that way. It's wonderful when the Lord gets your heart and all of your heart. Um, I get excited about it to see what God's going to do there with that next generation. 
And it says he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And then what I love about this is I was just speaking about it a moment ago. He says his mother's name was Abijah or Abijah. Now, why is that so important in there? Because again, what do we know about his father? He was an unrighteous, not a godly man. Where did Hezekiah learn about Jehovah? Where did he learn about Adonai? Where did he learn about Elohim? Where did he learn about God? It's his mother. She's listed right here for us. Abijah, it's listed. Obviously, a prominent woman, someone that was very important in the life of Hezekiah. And he goes so far and says that, oh, by the way, and he came, she, excuse me, Abijah, came and was the daughter of Zechariah. This is not Zechariah the prophet, but this Zechariah, he was a godly man. So on his mother's side, his grandpa, her grandpa, okay, he was a godly man that way, right? Which we see, well, I guess it would be Hezekiah's grandpa on his mother's side, if I'm saying that correctly. He was a godly man and more is caught than taught. So here you go. You got half of the family line that just downright evil, wickedness, doing the, and then the Lord took that other half of the line and through that he created this godly man, this grandpa, that ended up teaching his daughter, Abijah, the word of God. And that in turn, she taught her son. You can read the Proverbs. How many times does it talk about the roles and the beautiful privilege of a mother and a father, but a mother with the word of God and being able to sit with her children and open the word of God and read the word of God, knowing that it doesn't return void. And so I just, I just want to take a moment and I, you know, as I'm reminded of this passage, because in verse two, he said, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. Only four kings in all of scripture received this commendation. Only four. Do you remember them? Asa, right? We had Jehoshaphat. We had um, Josiah. And then Hezekiah would be our fourth. Only four. And all of the kings that we read about. Now, there certainly, you know, were other kings that had done good, but, but there was some error. There was something in their service. Not so that way, at least initially here as we read it, that this man, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Where did he learn that? He learned that from his mother. He learned that from his granddad, his, grand, his grandpa. And what a beautiful heritage when you can look back to someone that took the time to pour in. And because of that, look at the reform that's going to break out in all of Judah. And, oh, by the way, Israel, those that did, those remnant that did remain because of a godly parent. I really want to look at the mothers and fathers here tonight. I want to look at the grandparents because both of those are listed in scripture. And I want to be a word of encouragement by the word of God to you to say, don't give up. Don't quit. I know it's a lot of work. I know uh, if your house is anything like our house was, uh, many times ladies or guys in particular, I want to talk to the mothers for a minute. Your house is a mess. Uh, the kids are very good at destroying and toys everywhere or things everywhere. And, and, you know, sometimes you can get upset because, oh, things are not in place and, you know, and it can be overwhelming and frustrating. And let me just say, my wife um, so beautifully would say, my children aren't going to remember how clean the house was, but they will remember the word of God. They will remember the love I have for them and the time I spent with them. That's what my children are going to remember. And I can't, I, I would love to say that I was always supportive that way in my younger years. I would love to stand up here and say, you know what, Lisa, that was, you're right. Many a time after traveling for weeks, I'd get home, the house was in disarray. All I wanted to do was come into a quiet place, things in order, and I would have to try not to step on a Lego. You ever done that? That really smarts. And I'd have to make my way and... She would look at me and sometimes, you know, I'd say, Lee, is it so, you know, and I've often said, God, forgive me because she was right. And I read this passage here and that's how I know she was right. And so mothers, I want to be an encouragement to you here tonight. If you're, if you're struggling, if you're, if you're trying to do everything you can just to, to, to get dressed and to even be able to get, you know, to be able to have your day unfold where you're just, you know, you 
come to the door to greet your husband if you're if you're if you're able to stay at home if that's an opportunity and you smell like baby formula or you smell like dirty dye let me tell you something that's the sweetest smell in the world and pour into those children don't you dare give up on those children pour into them they need you mothers we need you we really do we need you mothers and i just love that the lord brought this out here in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Wow. So verse 24 again earlier in chapter 28 told us that he had closed them. What's the first thing he does? And I, you can't make this up, right? You cannot make this up for the timing. What are we about to do Friday? We're going to open these doors and what's going to happen? We're going to have a night of worship. What's the first thing Hezekiah does? In his first year, in his first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Why did he open up? So people could come in and do what? Worship. I love that. You can't make that stuff up the way the Lord has us here in the scripture. It's exactly what we're going to be doing. I love how the Lord ties those things together. And it says, then he brought in the priests and the Levites and he gathered them in the east square and he said to them, hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves. Why does he have to say that? <laughs> sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. So what's occurred in that short period of time, short period of months, what has happened, uh, maybe even longer than a few months, years, I should say, since... Ahaz was reigning and closed up the temple. They began to use it as a dump, as a garbage heap. They would bring in their stuff and they were just loitering and leaving it up. No respect for the house of God. No respect for the presence of God. Um, common, just treating it common in some, even worse than common. I bet you they wouldn't do that to their own homes. And yet they would do that in God's house. Just the evil and wickedness. And not only that, but we read that these priests, they needed to be sanctified. That tells us a lot of what was going on. For them to be sanctified, that means that they had to be cleansed. That means that they were not pure, holy, or in right relationship with God at that time. So not, not only were they not worshiping in the house, had, the house of the Lord, the church, had just gotten run down like that, and they're dumping trash in there. But you know what else became trash? The temple of their hearts right? They're the living temple that they're supposed to be. They just literally allowed all this filth and all of this stuff to not only permeate uh, what was on the outside, but even on the inside. Jesus referred to that to many of the religious leaders when he walked the earth. He said, you are like whitewashed tombs. It means on the outside, you look the part, you wear the white robes, but on the inside, you are filth. You are filth. And that's exactly what we read here. He says, Levites, hear me now. Sanctify yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord God. In other words, rededicate your lives to Christ. Become holy. Fulfill that purpose in which God has created you to be. You're to be a priest. You're to be a sent one, a messenger for God. You're to, you're to handle the affairs and the offerings and all the things of the Lord, the sacrifices at the temple. You're to be holy that way. There's nothing common about that. You're not to let yourself go and to dabble into all these other things. It says in verse 6, For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. So clearly, we read that there's not a right relationship. There's not, they're not clean. They're not pure. They're not holy. They're not consecrated. And what Hezekiah calls is he opens the house, come in and worship, clean this place up. We need to do that. But the next thing we need to do is not just have a clean building, but we need to have clean, sanctified hearts. And that's what God desires for his people. He wants us to have clean, pure, sanctified hearts. And that's exactly what he's looking for here. And he, he calls them to that because what had they done? They had turned their backs on God effectively. They may have the title. They may have the office. But as he said other places in Scripture in the Old Testament, but their hearts, he says, they, they call me with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far from me. 
far from me. And this break your heart. This is Judah. This is, a, this is a tribe of Judah, the branch, the branch of Jesse, as it says, that Messiah is going to come through, that, that God's going to come through. And, and this tribe of Judah, once David, one of the only people in Scripture that said he had a heart after the Lord. God, David was not a perfect man, but he had a heart after the Lord. He had a heart after God that way. And all the other kings had been compared to that, as we read in verse 2. All that his father David had done. And now we look at this tribe. And we look at this, and it's, it's unrecognizable. He, they in no way lived up to the Davidic, their end of the Davidic covenant to keep themselves holy and pure and faithful unto the Lord. And aren't you glad that it doesn't end here? He could have said, exclamation point, you know, period, 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 thereafter. It's over. It's done. But that's never been God's heart. He's saying, look, you got off. You blew it. You're out of the will of the Lord. It's very simple. Repent. Come back to your first love. Come back to your first love. Consecrate yourself. Separate yourself from the things of the world. Be holy, be pure, be righteous, be true. Every man and woman can do that. No matter where you've been, no matter what alley you've been down, no matter what road you've been traveling, if you're on the wrong path or not on the, the, the very road that God has laid out for you, the good news is, friend, you're not stuck on that road. You're not stuck on that road. At any time, there is a entrance, or if you prefer, an exit off of that road, back, back onto the road, the narrow road, or the narrow way, if I can say it that way. Isn't that wonderful? That security to know that, okay, Lord, if I blow it, Lord, you're a God of reconciliation. You're not just going to write me off. You're not just going to say, I'm done with you. You blew it. No, you're going to say, I, I want you back. I want, I want all of you. I love you. I love that. And they also had shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. So no worship was going on, no offerings, and most importantly, no one was dealing with sin. No one was dealing with sin. There was no voice to be heard. There was no priest standing in the gap that way, other than obviously we talked about Micah and the prophets. God spoke, Hebrews teaches us, right? After we finish the book of John, we'll be in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that God in the days of old, he spoke through the prophets, but now he speaks through his son, Jesus Christ. So he spoke through the prophets at that time. You had Isaiah and Micah, and they were certainly mouthpieces of the Lord. But the very guys that men, the, the priests, were missing in action. And so he says that the word hadn't been going forward, and no one was dealing with sin. Apostasy and heresy and just outright abomination of sin was going on. And for most people, I bet you they thought, well, then the devil probably said, we won. It's over. We got him. Not when God says, but. Or therefore, right? What we read here, therefore the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem. And praise God for that. For whom he loves, he corrects. And he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. I read that. That's it's very hard to read, to think about my wife or my children or your wives or your children because of the apostasy of the nation, because of the evil and wickedness of the nation. Now, it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him to serve him and that you should minister to him and burn incense. 
He says, that's why you were created. That's what you're here for and that's your calling. Let's get to it. Let's get to it. Then these Levites arose, Mahath, the son of Amasai, and Joel, the son of Azariah, and the sons of the Kathites, and Kohathites of the sons of Mirai, Kish, and the son of Abdi, and Azariah, the son of Jehaliel, of the Gershonites, Joah, the son of Zimah, and Eden, the son of Joah, of the sons of Elzapan, Shimri, and Jeliel, the sons of Asaph, and Zechariah, and Mataniah, and of the sons of Heman, Jehiel and Shimei, and of the sons of Jeduthun, Shemaiah, and Uziel. And, and most important, I love this, in verse 15, underline this in your Bible. You know what? I, I have a note in my little Bible here right to the, the side. What is? What do we do when God puts a call on our hearts? Maybe there's somebody here tonight. I, I don't want to make any assumptions. I know we're all going through different things in our lives, different trials, temptations, and things like that. Look, church is a hospital, Right? We come in here. We don't come in here as perfect, you know, men and women. We come in here as broken, right, redeemed sinners, needing encouragement, needing to be, you know, bearing each other's burdens, constantly looking for opportunities to minister to others and be ministered to ourselves, to be poured into. It's a hospital. We don't walk in here and go, oh, finally a perfect place. If somebody did that and they came here, they would they'd turn right around and walk right out. They'd say, man. But you know what? There's a lot of love here because Jesus is here. Jesus is here. And it's amazing. Love covers a multitude or, as we read in Scripture, even in the Proverbs, all sins. Oh, by the way. So we read and we see... Uh, in verse 15, the most important thing is how do we respond? Right now, I gave everybody the Lord through the Holy Spirit tonight. He's giving everybody a challenge here. If there's someone that's walking contrary to the Word of God, contrary to God's heart and design, he's not saying, I'm done with you. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, get right with me. I love you. Come home. Come back to me. Come back to my commandments, statutes, and judgments. I love you. Turn to me. It doesn't matter where you've been. It's where you're going. It doesn't matter how you start. It's how you finish. And what do we see? What's the response from the people of Judah that hear this? They say, forget it, man. We've been down that road. We know how it ends. It's hard work. No, they don't say that. In verse 15, we read in what I have as my note in my Bible, obedience. Obedience. They obey. And they gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves, and went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. That's a revival. And that came from a man who grew up with his father being one of the most wicked, ungodly men who literally closed the church down at that time, closed the temple, stopped worship, stopped the offering, stopped sacrifice. And here's this 25-year-old man just a young man, his first month in. And what does he do? He says, you know what? Let's open the church. Let's worship. You guys, consecrate yourself. Let the word start going forward again. Let's, let's do the sacrifice. And you know what? Everybody says, yeah, that sounds great. Let's get after it. You know, we had that, I, I know some of you attended, we had the the walker at the Capitol for, for, you know, the unborn child against abortion, right? We just had that gathering. And in the Capitol, do you know how many people came to that roughly? Do you know how many people? You guys were there. I know there were other people that were there. Do you know how many people were there that, that day, that morning, if I could say it that way, the day or whatever time? 6,000. It was packed. Just a couple weeks earlier, they had a, a pro-abortion rally there. You know how many people were there? You could see in the picture, it looked like less than 50. And then all of a sudden, the people that are pro-the Lord, pro-God, pro-child and against murder, and they descend on that place with the Spirit of God, and some 6,000 people come. What a blessing that is to see that. And that's a right response and that's what we see here. That's exactly what the people did. They said, you're giving us a call to action. We say, amen. Let's do it. We're in. 
and they respond to the call and actions with obedience. Then the priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the debris so that they found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it out and carried it to the brook Kidron. So, you know, towards the east side there. Now they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month and on the eighth day of the eighth month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. Okay, that's the porch that leads to the temple. And so they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. That was a lot of neglect. You can do the math here. You can count it, right? They, on the eight days, it says that they started. And then on the 16th day, that's a lot of garbage, a lot of trash, a lot of neglect. And then they went into King Hezekiah and said, we have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of the burnt offerings with all its articles and the table of showbread with all its articles. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside his transgressions, we have prepared and sanctified, and there they are, before the altar of the Lord. I love that. Then King Hezekiah rose early, and gathered the rulers of the city, and went up to the house of the Lord, and they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats, for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. Seven. What does that number represent? Hebrew in the uh, Bible. What does that tell? It's a number of completeness, right? What, what's it describing? It's talking about the completeness of heart in which these men and women and every, their hearts just completely surrendered and submitted to God. And the seven, 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 telling us complete repentance of sin, completely dealt with. Then he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they killed the bulls and the priests, and the pre not the, and the priests, by the way. <laughs> like, whoa, man. Sorry, forgive me. So they killed the bulls, comma, and the, and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. What is that a beautiful picture of? Likewise, they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. They also killed the lambs and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Then they brought out the male goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their, their hands on them. What, what are they doing? This is symbolic, the idea here of a substitution. It's always been pointing to one that would take the sin away because they were incapable of doing it themselves. And the blood, life is in the blood, the sprinkling of the blood, right? All pointing to Jesus Christ. It's, so, it's a typology, and it's so symbolic here. And again, and the priest killed them, and they presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make atonement for all Israel. So that's also what's happening is they're literally transferring the sin onto this animal, and then the animal has to be sacrificed as a propitiation, as a substitute. The only difference is, is as we read again in Hebrews and other passages in our two New Testament, that these offerings didn't satisfy the Lord. The offerings of bulls and goats and only one propitiation could do that. And that was the Christ, Jesus, our Lord. And it wasn't for a covering of the sin or a transfer, so to speak. It was a complete removal. He took our sin. Okay? And I know that sounds like he took it. We, we, sometimes I know preachers, we say, pastors, we say, he took his sin upon us. We have to be careful when we say that because he didn't actually sin. Our sin didn't come onto him to the point of where now he's full of sin. He was still sinless. He'd never sinned. We, you know, we have to be careful. I have to be careful the words I use there. But the idea was is that we read here is there had to be an offering, an atonement. And that's what he was. He atoned our sin by removing it from our account. Teleo is the Greek word. And we use the term or the conjugation of that in the Greek telestai. It's an accounting term that means paid in full. But the etymology of the word, if you go back, it's teleo in the Greek. And it means the fullness of completion. It, there's nothing re left to do to that account. It's closed. It's paid. You can't 
It's not like, oh, I can add more to it. You know, sometimes I think that's where the works-based mentality of Christianity comes in, that we think somehow we can add to that account. You know, God did, uh, he had a great start to it, and then we're going to add more to it, right? That's not what the Greek says. It's, it's paid in full, the account is closed. You can't, you can't further add to the remission of sin. Now, sanctification and treasures you can build up in heaven, yes, but that's not salvation. That's not salvinic. There's two different things we're talking about, salvation and sanctification. This is salvation. And this is what this is talking in picture, a symbol of for us here tonight, that we can see the picture of Christ, the true type, pointing to what? To our need. They had a need. We have a need. We have a need because without that being settled, that account in full, we stand before a holy God, guilty as charged, and our account is due. And as a righteous judge, he has to render the right verdict based on what's in the account. And the good news is for a born-again believer in Christ, when you've given your life to him, you surrendered, you believe on him as your Lord and Savior, and you believe in the resurrection, he, cl- he basically has forgiven all your sin. He's removed all your sins. So when you stand before him, he, you stand before him innocent. Innocent. I mean, justified. You just let that thing sink in for a minute. There's, there's no more transfer. There's no more at that moment. It's already been done. And oh, by the way, past, present, and future. This was something that would be done every year. Right? Even through Yom Kippur, the priest would go in and on an annual basis, he would transfer or I use that word, but he would turn around and he would provide an offering and a sacrifice for the covering of the sin of the nation to remove that, to, to remove that from the account. And that's not, that's no longer needed. And, and how do we know that? Because if we keep reading here, he says, to make an atonement for all Israel, for the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering be made for all of Israel, right? What is the birth offering, right? The idea behind that is it's complete. When you have a burnt offering, there's nothing left. What he's describing here is a complete consecration. There's nothing left. It's not like I'm holding on a part of my heart or a part of me for me. When I'm a bondservant and I'm a submitted, surrendered servant of Christ, I belong completely to him. I'm blood-bought. And it's beautiful. And that's exactly why. Because I am fully consecrated. Because I am, it's a complete work that Christ is doing when he does that. That's why there's nothing that remains. There is nothing. It's all burned up. There is no more sin on the account. And, and again, all of this was a topology, a type, an illustration, a symbol for us to see. It was a symbol for Israel. It was a symbol for every human to understand that there was a need to satisfy and to make atonement for our sin. In verse 25, it says, And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with the cymbals, with stringed instruments, with harps according to the commandment of David and Gad the king's seer and Nathan the prophet, for thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. So in the days of old, the things that he had done, he's going back to that. This is what he's saying. He's basically reinstituting the worship that it was intended by God. And this is important because we don't get to just worship God any old way. We don't get to just do that. We, we don't get to, you know, God meets us where we're at. But then we don't get to define the terms of the relationship. And that's good, actually, because it's absolute and complete. Again, it's not like we can come back and say, well, I sort of halfway met the relationship. And Jesus was like, oh, well, then I halfway forgive you. There is none of that. You are completely covered and washed by the blood of the lamb. And it's forever. It's complete that way. And so... There's a, there's a way that God wants us to worship. And it's what? How does the Bible say in the New Testament, New Covenant? We're to worship in what? Spirit and truth, right? We know, we know the passages, right? He, this is what he's, he's teaching us. He's teaching us that when we come to God, there, there is a requirement of obedience there. He wants us to obey him. And not only that, he says, those that 
New Testament tells us, he, we, he will know who his disciples are, who those who love him by those who what? Keep his commandments, statutes, and judgments. Right? That's the aim. That's the desire. But there's someone here tonight that's going, but what happens when I blow it and I sin? Does that mean that I've blown my salvation? Does that mean I can lose my salvation? No. Because you can't and don't have the power because it's a unilateral covenant when you think about it. It's bidirectional in the essence that you receive what Christ gives you. But once you receive that, there's nothing further you can do to alter your salvation. You can't ratify that covenant if you're tracking with me tonight. You can't alter it. You don't have the power. You're not God. I'm not God. It was his blood. It was his covenant that he established for the remission of sin. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a way that God has established it, and I think it's important not to have a bait and switch, but that God does desire us to follow his commandments, statutes, and judgments. But when we blow it, because we will blow it in life, we don't have to sit there and worry, oh, Lord, I'm no longer your son. No, what God wants us to do at that point is the same thing that Hezekiah because God's speaking through the Spirit to Hezekiah, what did he tell them to do? Sanctify yourselves, right? Be holy. In other words, repent. Turn away from your sin. Separate yourself from that sin. Don't keep doing it. And then do what? Then follow me. Isn't that beautiful? It's wonderful that he provides this way for us. Because he knows we're going to blow it. He, he, he knows it. He, know, he knows how we're built. He knows how I'm built. Although that's not my aim or my desire, by the way. I don't want grace to abound from that, Romans, right? But then the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer burnt offerings on the altar. And when the burnt offerings began, the song of the Lord also began. Oh, I what would you pay to be there at that moment, huh? With the trumpets worship and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. Remember how he worshiped? He came in, he was dancing around. Oh, I love it. So all the assembly worshiped. The singers sang, the trumpets resounded, and all continued until the burnt offerings were finished. I'm praying that's what it's like this Friday. And we come in here, we worship man alive. We don't want it to end. We don't want it to end. And when they had finished the offering and the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshiped, right? So we see, we see that everybody does this a little bit different. In this case, in scripture, we see sort of a humility. There's this bowing, you know, whether as they're worshiping, they're singing, maybe they're kind of getting down. I've, you know, people in the fellowship have been here before. There's times they're in services. See, you all don't see it. I see it. There's something the Lord striking. Somebody might fall to their knees and they're just praying. Right then and there as the Lord is speaking, God has got their heart and they're falling on their knees and they're just consecrated before the Lord. And they're just poured out like a drink offering, beautiful before God. It's wonderful when the Lord has a, a heart like that. You know, some people, when we're worshiping, what do we do? Some of us lift holy hands, right, as it says in Scripture. What are we doing? We're not just kind of going, hey, right? What are we doing? We're lifting holy hands up to the holy God. We're all, you're, you're all in all, Lord, right? That's what we're doing. I don't have to be, we don't have to be scared about that. I know sometimes in worship, you know, I, I don't watch anybody. I'm worshiping. My eyes are closed. But I mean, sometimes I know there's this, you know. You know, and it's, what are we doing? What are you worried about? Who cares? Nobody's looking at you. Don't worry about that. That's a lie. No, nobody's looking at you. Eyes are closed. We're worshiping the Lord. At that moment, we're in the altar in the throne room of God. And we're singing right to Jesus. Right to our Father. That's what we're doing. That's what they're showing here. That's, that's the idea. That kind of, just that humility. This is bowed as they're worshiping. Just wonderful. Moreover, King Hezekiah... And the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they're singing psalms as well. 
So they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads in worship. So we see another sort of another posture. They had bowed in worship, kind of bowed. Now they're kind of just bowing their heads, different postures. Then Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord, so that the assembly brought in the sacrifices and thank offerings, and many of them were willing with a willing heart brought burn offering. So what we see happen differently here, a little different. Initially, it was a burn offering. It was covering a sin offering and forgiveness, repentance. And now what we see, and this is beautiful, this is in addition to that, is a personal devotion. And I believe in reading this when it says, then Hezekiah answered, right? Isn't that, who's he answering? We just read that they're bowing their heads in worship. So who are they, who's he answering? Because it says, then Hezekiah answered and said, now that you have consecrated, he's answered, who's he, what's going on at that moment? At the moment, he's, he, I believe he's in communication with God. He's hearing from the Spirit of the Lord. He's, he's hearing what God is saying to him. He's also seeing the response of the people. He's moved by that. And at this point, what's he do? He makes an invitation. He basically said to them, look, and it's right. He says, look, in a, for personal devotion to the Lord from an individual if that's on your heart right now and, and you want to worship this way and you want to bring sacrifice this way, you want to bring offerings this way, you have every opportunity to worship your God and go ahead and do it. And that's what he shows. And, and what do they do? I mean, it says now that you're right with the Lord because you're consecrated, now you're in a relationship with God again. Now you get to worship. Now you get to be in that place where as an individual, okay, Lord, I want to give you more of me. I want to see more of the glory of God, right? It's no longer about achieving the relationship. The relationship's there, right? He's, they've turned back. Now it has more to do with when you're in the relationship, it comes down to the individual. And what are you and the Lord doing? You and the Lord are a multitude. That's what's being broken out here for us. And I think that's how it works many of the times. We come in, we begin, somebody gives us the gospel, we get saved. Once we're saved, then we do what? Then we start, really, the sanctification process begins, and we start drawing closer and closer to the Lord. Our worship, we start learning what even worship is. Maybe we didn't know what worship was. We start singing out with our voices. Some people are skilled and gifted. They might even say, well, again, I want to be on the worship team. They want to be a part of it. Some people think, well, I've never tithed or give the free will offering to God. All of a sudden, they're thinking about that now because they're like, well, I want to further the kingdom of God. So I'm going to, I'm going to give in the agape boxes. I'm going to do those things that I didn't do before. This is exactly what we're seeing here. They're in right relationships. Now that's when that happens. God moves upon their hearts. So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings. And as many as were willing, notice that, willing, not contrived, not forced, but willing, with a willing heart, they brought burnt offerings. Again, what is the burnt offering signifying? The completeness, the completeness of it. There's nothing left. The whole consecration. And those and the number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought us in was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs, and all these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. Wow. It cost them something, didn't it? The consecrated things were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. This is an expression of devotion. But the priests were too few. Oh. So that they could not skin all the burnt offerings. The Lord had raised it, put it on their hearts. People are coming in modern day. We don't bring lambs and bulls. People are coming in and they're putting stuff in the agape. And there's not even pastors or, or someone like that that could even collect. You know, go grab the collection, bring it into the other. There's not even people to be able to do that. That's what, that's what this is saying here. Where are the holy men? Where are the guys that are supposed to be holy and consecrated unto the Lord? And this break your heart? Where are these men of God? It says there were too few. 
They didn't have enough people to, the people brought their offering. They wanted to bring it to the Lord and they didn't even have somebody that could, could, you know, slaughter the animal for the sacrifice. How do you think that would make you feel? You just made this incredible sacrifice. Maybe, you know, maybe you only had one sheep at your house and you took your only sheep and you bring it in. You want to give it to the Lord in devotion like that. And there's not even somebody to sacrifice it for you. It breaks your heart, wouldn't it? It would, it would disappoint you. It would sorrow you. Lord, I want to do this for you. But where are the godly men? Where are the, where are the pastors? Where are the priests in this particular? Where are they, Lord? Therefore, the brethren, the Levites, helped them until the work was ended and until the other priests had sanctified themselves. And the Lord allows this. We see the Lord allow this here. It doesn't say it's sinful. What God does is he takes the Levites, which they were not to be the ones doing the sacrifices. Remember, they were to come along and help the priests. They were not of the, the tribe, of, they were not of the sons of Aaron, right? So they were not the priests, but they were able to, as Levites, they were to come by and help out. They were supposed to take the implements and the things that were going on as part of the worship. But God allows them. We read it here. God allows them because there wasn't enough godly priests that way. God allows these men to come and says, you know what? For the people. For the people. God loves the people. And he's going to put the people first. He says for the people so that they can have devotion. So that they can have true worship. He says, Levites, you go. You do this. You come alongside. I know it's not in my law that way, but you do this. And I, I'm going to allow it because of the motives of people's heart. We've seen Jesus do things like that, didn't we? He's the Lord of the Shabbat, isn't he? The Lord of the Sabbath. We saw him do that. We saw him do that with a, with a woman that was caught in adultery. Remember that? Go sin no more expressing the love. The law clearly said she was to be stoned to death. Did Jesus ever break the law? Of course not. Didn't we already read love? What's the motive? Right? We have to be very careful. We can become so legalistic, and if we lose love, we're just as much in error as if we didn't keep the law at all. We're not under the law now. You understand through the Old Testament times, but we're just as much error. Without love, without, without a heart's desire for repentance. And grace and love and mercy. And the Levites helped them until the work was ended and until the other priests had sanctified themselves. For the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. Not a good time in Judah in the regards to these men. Also the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offering and with the drink offering for every burnt offering. So the surface of the house of the Lord was set in order. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had repaired the people since the events took place so suddenly. You know what I call that? I call that a revival. Nobody planned it. Nobody turned around and lathered it up. They didn't have a workshop on it. There wasn't a program. They didn't have a conference where they needed to get together and specifically talk about how they're going to garner the moving of the Holy Spirit to try to lather it up and to move it on a... No. It was wonderful. God had all their hearts. They consecrated themselves. And the Spirit of God took over. And people just began to worship. They began to sing. They began to, to look at their lives, examine their lives in light of their sin in light of the things that had been going on and they wanted to turn away from that. They weren't even forced to do that. They wanted to turn away from that. And then even the Levites, as we just read, they, the men that were helping out, the, they were so moved by this, they themselves consecrated themselves and said, Lord, we'll, whatever you need, Lord God, we'll do it. It doesn't matter that that's not our office or our job. We don't, I don't care, Lord. Whatever you, whatever you want to do, Lord, I'm in. I'm going to do it. I'm not, you know, if I'm in, I'm in the ministry. I'm not going to turn around and go, well, I don't do that in the ministry. No, I don't see that. I don't see that anywhere in the scriptures. If I'm in the ministry, I'm in the ministry. I'm, I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm serving God. I'm serving his people. It's beautiful. And then, and then it says, and it took place suddenly. They couldn't plan it. I love this. And ask the musicians to come up. Let's prepare our hearts tonight. We're going to have a closing song. We're going to worship. Maybe there's someone here again tonight that has not 
been in a right relationship with the Lord for whatever reason. It doesn't, honestly, the reason doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter tonight. But maybe there's something that's just been a wedge there. And maybe, maybe you've been wrestling with it. Maybe you've been struggling with it. And, and you've been trying to figure out, how can I conquer this sin? How can I get in right relationship? You know what? The Lord has made it so simple. All he wants you to do is give him your heart and tell him, I love you. Lord, I'm not a perfect man. I'm not a perfect woman. I'm not a, but I want to have a consecrated heart. I want to love you completely. And I want to be all in. And I want to worship you in spirit and truth. And then I'm going to enjoy and rejoice and receive the contentment and the joy and the filling of the Holy Spirit that just literally fills this place. Because I'm in right relationship with God. You guys want that tonight? I want that tonight. Would you stand with me, please, if you're able? I'm going to take just 10 seconds. I'm going to give everybody an opportunity here. Just you and your God. You don't need to come talk to a man. There is no mediator but the man Christ Jesus. But I want you just to talk to your God. And if there's anything that's been in the way, I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, remove this from me tonight. Remove this addiction. Remove this thorn, Lord. Remove this problem. Remove whatever it is. Remove my self-will. Remove my self-dependence. Remove it from me tonight. Set me free, Jesus, because I'm going to worship you like I've never worshiped you before. And I want all of you, Lord. I'm not going to settle for a pie. I want all of you, Jesus. So let your Holy Spirit just fall on this place. So pray that right now. Fathers, you just overheard. That's our heart's desire. Lord, save now. Put us all in right relationship now. Let us worship you, Lord, in spirit and truth. Please receive it from the depths of our hearts now. As we sing out, Lord, it doesn't matter what our voices sound like to you, God. We know you don't care about that. You just want all of our hearts. Let our, Lord, let us just be that clay in your hand, that, that putty, that, that in the potter's hand, Lord, as you rebuild and reshape our lives, as you, as you rebuild us and call us to this beautiful place of service, Lord. And most important, as a child of God, to just sit with our Father in heaven, even right in this place right now as we lift our voices to you. Lord, bring us into that throne room. Let us stand before you and let all the angels, let everyone glorify your name right now. Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.